Dr. Stan Steindl. Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt in Session, where I speak with people from around the world about their life and their work with compassion. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lisa McLean, who's a psychologist in private practice at Ocean Psychology here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. She has a wealth of experience working with people who've experienced trauma. Her PhD was titled Compassion Focused Therapy as a group-based intervention for adult female survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Such important work. I hope you enjoy being in session with my friend, Dr. Lisa McLean. Well, welcome, um, Dr. Lisa McLean, to Compassion in a T-shirt in session. Thank you, actually, for giving up a little bit of your time this morning. I know you'll be rushing off to work after this and so on, but it's a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Um, I'm actually up the coast as well. I, I forgot to mention Aww. that. So, uh, funnily enough, we're we're just around the corner, but we're you know still on Zoom. So. Oh, that's almost a little teasing. Yes, I know. <laughs> that's what I thought. But of course, yeah, we've known each other really for several years now and, and, and beginning with, uh, you know, your wonderful research. And, and so, you know, maybe we'll get a little bit of a, a chance to, to speak about some of that today. But, um, but yeah, I, I thought we might start, if you, if you wouldn't mind, just, just sort of telling us a little bit about you. Um, you know, perhaps uh, your your kind of work maybe at the moment or a bit about your life or where things are at, maybe what you're really passionate about? Oh, that's a big question. But uh, I, yes, live on the Sunshine Coast um, where you are now as well. And we're very fortunate to be here. And it looks like it's going to be a very lovely weekend. So you've chosen a good time to be here. It's a beautiful so, day. It is. So, um, yeah, I very much in my downtime love just spending time on the beach and with my dogs, one of whom is um, right here beside me now. So oh, yes. hopefully we won't get too many interruptions. <laughs> um, but work wise, um, yes. Yeah, so we have just spent the last five years working together on mm. uh, my PhD, which was applying a group based uh, CFT intervention for adult female survivors of childhood sexual abuse mm. and that's really been the focus of my work probably for over 25 years I'd say I've been working with primarily women and children but, but men as well who've been impacted by interpersonal violence and uh, I, I worked in uh, NGOs and community organisations largely, um, you know, for that time, but the last few years have been seeing clients in private practice, still focusing primarily on that kind of um, main presenting concern. Mm. So the, the uh, motivation, I guess, for, for the PhD uh, arose out of that clinical work. Yes, I mean, that, I, I've always really greatly admired and appreciated that uh, about you and your work. I mean, you, you've absolutely dedicated your working life to people who, you know, it's really important to, to find ways to be helpful there and, and the, you know, sort of working with suffering, which of course itself is, you know, your work it is, is compassion, you know, in action, isn't it? You know, really the, the work that you do. 
and then you weave in that compassion focused approach for the people you're working with as well and and kind of um you know cultivate i guess compassion in 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 them as well tell us a bit about that segue there you know what how does how does that kind of how has that worked for you yeah, well, I think you're right. I think intuitively, you know, perhaps even before I had the language of CFT, um, mm. you know, helping helping um, survivors of uh, childhood sexual abuse, I'll, I will just kind of talk about it in terms of that client group, if that's okay, because that's mm. been the primary focus of my work. Yeah. Um, obviously, helping them to change the way that they feel about themselves and relate to themselves following, you know, such a uh such a harmful and devastating experience um requires uh cultivation of self-compassion and the ability to kind of be open to receiving compassion even if just through that therapeutic process mm. um but i probably that was an intuitive thing you know it wasn't necessarily you know in the context of the language of cft but i think that that is why when i did discover cft it resonated so strongly because it did make such intuitive sense um, for me in terms of you know what what had already been um, you know happening maybe more implicitly in in the therapeutic process and that's really where my motivation came from um, i was working with clients who were making some really positive therapeutic gains but this issue of shame was just a, uh, uh, you know, a real sticking point, if you like, in terms of it almost felt like the final um, concern or, or, or struggle that just, uh, you know, could, it was so hard to shift. It was such internalised um, shame. And, uh, you know, the moment for me came with just having a couple of clients at around the same time who you know, had done so well in terms of therapeutic process and we were really ready to kind of almost um, finish. But, and they said, you know, it's just, I still feel this shame. I, I, I know, I know that I, I shouldn't or it's not my shame. And I know, in, you know, in, in my mind that I'm not to blame, but I just can't help it. It's still such, you know, such a hard thing to shift. I think it was just the really kind of accepting way that they just kind of said this almost like yeah this is just something that they were just going to have to live with that just felt so unacceptable you know for, for me it just felt like such such a mm. uh, unfair legacy you know for, for them to continue to carry so that really motivated me to really uh, begin to to dive deep into finding therapeutic approaches that specifically address shame Mm. I don't know if you have this habit, but I have this habit of buying so many books uh. and not ever having the opportunity to have a deep dive into them, but having a general uh. sense of kind of what they're about and where I would find the information if I wanted to. Yeah. And one of those books came to my mind when I was kind of wrestling with this question, um, which was the wonderful Dr. Deborah Lee's book, The compassionate mind approach to understanding trauma I think is the title and I had this recollection of oh I think there's something specific in there around shame mm. so I revisited that book and oh, honestly I can still remember the moment it was just like such an aha moment in terms of just as we were just talking about that connection between what just felt so intuitively appropriate and then here's this kind of framework and 
way of conceptualizing it that just made so much sense and was specifically targeted for clients with shame and self-criticism and here's um you know uh dr deborah lee applying it specifically to 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 clients impacted by trauma the exact kind of um focus that i that i was looking for mm. and you know she even had a had a term for what my clients were describing you know, this head heart lag this this idea that yeah i know it in my head but there's just you know my heart's not catching up with it and and you know my clients were kind of accepting that that's just how it was going to be so it just gave me so much hope and it just made so much sense to me that I just, you know, I really remember thinking, well, this is it. This is, this is what we need to be doing. Um, and that's what started that, the, the whole journey for me. So I guess that's what I mean when I say it, 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 my motivation evolved from my clinical work and mm. it's very much about now how it continues to be applied in that context. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoyed hearing that story lisa because you know it, it's um i can sort of see those those kind of key moments along the way you know that there was this um you know dedication of to work with with people survivors and and trying to you know sort of just that intuitive sense that you had about the importance of compassion in amongst all of that and then also this recognition of 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 shame and the pervasiveness and and the pers persistence of it you know that that sense that you mentioned this this kind of ongoing internal struggle e even when they might get when it, many of us might get to a point where we know you know um that we needn't feel that way but we still do feel that way that the, the knowing feeling the head heart lag and so you you went on a kind of a a, a, a sort of a campaign to work it out you know what can we do there you know for this bit you know it felt a bit like you sort of said acceptance for the the person you were working with was sort of almost accepting that and and the word that came to mind was almost sort of a resignation too you know sort of feeling as if i have to just put up with that and and you were like no um it, it didn't feel acceptable to you you wanted to work it out <laughs> is, is there a way that we can sort of do stuff and maybe there's something there with that intuitive sense of compassion. Maybe that's the link. You actually kind of really stumbled across or, or discovered that within yourself. And then of course, yes, Deborah's, Deborah Lee's book. And uh, you know, there were some of the details of it and, and it was like this in, incredible sort of light bulb aha moment for you. And, and, and you sort of felt hopeful, you know, that, that was, the thing you yeah. felt hopeful and we kind of know don't we that the client a client's hope and optimism is really sort of predicted by a clinician's hope and optimism you know if we're able to approach something with that sort of hope then maybe they can too you know and, and so you know that's where you ended up yeah that that's a really good summary of of the process and you're so right about hope because i think in that moment when i was you know wrestling with what i was hearing you know it just it didn't feel like an option to just say yeah i guess that's the best that we can do mm. um and that felt hopeless to me um so mm. yeah i think you're right i think a lot of what resonated with me when i then did you know discover uh 
CFT in a more kind of, you know, um, oh, here's the language for it and here's the framework for it and, oh, this mm. all makes sense, which, of course, led me to Paul's work and down down quite an immersion in, in CFT for, for the next few years. Mm. Um, it did make me feel so hopeful and I continue to believe even more so now that I've had the chance to kind of apply it and see it in practice. You know, I feel more hopeful than ever and, and believe more strongly than ever that, you know, that initial thought I have of, wow, this is it, this is the key. I, I, I definitely still uh, believe more strongly than ever in that. So you, you were sort of saying that that, that clinical experience and, and sort of the, the journey there for you of discovery and, and, and really sort of that motivation to be helpful, that clinical stuff then led to the research stuff, you know, so tell us a bit about, you know, kind of that next step, you know, embarking on the PhD. What, what was that like to sort of dive in there? I guess looking back, I think probably most people who start a PhD would say they were probably a bit naive about um, what the process was going to entail when they first started. But I just had that strong motivation of believing so strongly in the likelihood that this was going to be really beneficial. Um, you know, that, that I wanted to, I guess, gather some evidence for that, or at least do gather some preliminary kind of evidence around specifically uh, this, this client population, so adult female survivors of childhood sexual abuse, which was who I was working with at the time. Mm. And of course, it was an option, I was working in a sexual assault service, it was an option to kind of develop the program and um, just run it within the service as part of the service delivery that's offered there and um, you know I was very much supported in in the the service that I was working at to do that but I just had this sense that um, it did need to be bigger than that that it that it did need to kind of offer something beyond one you know a part of a, a suite of uh, services you know in one location that mm. uh, you know I just felt so strongly that it was likely to be beneficial that I wanted to formalize I guess the the preliminary data about that and and explore that possibility I like how you said that you know like this you're just believing in the likelihood of, that it would be beneficial you know you, you, you you'd seen it um, be helpful individually with with clients you had this kind of place that you were working and and you know you could sort of gather evidence there but you really wanted to to take it a bit sort of further and beyond, you know, how could you yes. take it, a, a, you know, and, and actually formalize it, create a, a kind of a, a sort of a package there of some sort and, and, and really um, put it to the test, I guess. Yeah, it's, that's it's, right. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you know, sort of, we almost have to be a little bit naive <laughs> to embark on a PhD because they are, you know, massive undertakings. Um, if we knew some of the ins and outs, we might not bother. <laughs> but um, You're spot on. yeah, but you were passionate about it uh, by the sounds of it, and 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 you know really wanted to to demonstrate the the helpfulness. So so how did it kind of you know sort of evolve from there? Then what 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 was what what did the PhD involve in the end? So the first step was to develop a program. And even mm. though I, um, you know, this has been the last five years, so maybe started this, you know, five and a half, six years ago, um, there, there wasn't the resources available then 
um, that there are now the last five years, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, has seen so many wonderful books and resources come out uh, on CFT. But at that time, there there wasn't so much. So I did decide to uh, develop the manual from scratch myself, incorporating, making sure that it incorporated all of the key kind of CFT psychoeducation components and practices, um, but obviously all um, tailored, I guess, for want of a better term, for um you know, survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So uh, really highlighting in the manual and the practices and the um, and the process itself, I guess, making sure it was really trauma-informed. Although, you know, I will say that I think CFT is, is quite intuitively or implicitly trauma-informed anyway, but just really making sure that um, mm. it was tailored to this particular client group. And so I developed the manual. Initially, I developed it as an eight-week um, program just to pilot it. So, you know, I thought we'd just start with maybe what the minimum number of modules, you know, that might be required just in the interest of resource efficiency and modelled it, I guess, on um, I had already done a lot of training and practice in kind of MBSR and MBCT programs, which were eight-week programs. So we start, I started with that and we piloted it and it certainly showed good acceptability and good potential and some positive results, but uh, there wasn't enough change identified or there wasn't significant change across core target areas such as shame or, um, sorry, that's my dog barking now, um, shame or uh, trauma symptoms, which is really what I wanted to target primarily. So we decided to then roll it out. Um, and thankfully um, and gratefully, um, I had the support of the, the local sexual assault network. So I had uh, sexual assault services that were uh, really willing to, to um, have this group run in their service and uh, with, with the clients of their service. So I adapted the uh, program to a 12 week program which allowed extra focus on really consolidating what we mean about compassion, it allowed extra focus on the issue of shame and how compassion can uh, support or, or respond to feelings of shame, an extra module on specifically responding to um, trauma symptoms and particularly symptoms relating to things like re-experiencing symptoms. Then another module on kind of just maintaining compassion, pulling it all together and just giving opportunities to kind of practice based on, you know, everyday kind of experiences, <clears throat> excuse me. And then the second phase also had a three month follow up session. I then ran, I think it was four groups across different sexual assault services, even though, again, this is preliminary data. So it's an uncontrolled study, but that the outcome of that um, phase showed very promising uh, result and then uh, qualitative data based on interviews with participants after the um, groups had finished also you know highlighted some really valuable information about the process and um, certainly the acceptability of, of the intervention. Isn't it interesting you know kind of the research journey you know is, is um, because as we you, you kind of highlighted before, you know, that, that, that this sort of, it, it was about 
shame and and you know what can we do to really help that in this client group and then there was this sort of believing in the likelihood of the beneficialness or I'm not sure if that's a word of um of CFT and then the pilot when it didn't quite do that in a way you know like as you say you, it didn't quite um have the some of the change around the the shame I think you know you you were saying in particular right. and and, yeah. and so you know, the, it, it's a it's a roller coaster, isn't it? The research journey, because you know, there you are. You you you. you I, I see what you mean. You you designed it as an eight week program, a little bit like MBSR, and I, I know the Compassionate Mind Training program uh, is also eight weeks. So uh, you know that that's um, you know that that make, makes a lot of sense. But then there was this challenge, I guess. It didn't quite lead to the sort of significant change in in um, in in the very thing that in, that urge you on to begin That's with right. and and so I mean just as a little personal note I mean do, do you remember that moment I mean what was that like there or was it okay really you know to, to find that I think it was okay I think yeah. I knew that this was very much about learning what maybe needed to be tweaked or you know I, I think yeah. I went in just genuinely quite curious and open to you know even though I did believe you know, quite strongly in it, in its benefits. I also knew that um, the shame, you know, is so ingrained, so internalized that, um, you know, I think I'm realistic also about what the process is for for shifting that. And, mm. um, you know, I would even suggest at the stage that I'm at now, and certainly a key recommendation from the study was, yes, there was certainly... Um, very very you know significant and and positive results that came then out of the 12-week program that you know for a lot of people anyway were maintained at three-month follow-up uh it's a much longer journey than that as well you know so um you know a key recommendation you know and what I absolutely think is necessary is opportunities for ongoing practice and consolidation of mm. you know a compassionate mind perspective because you know we are talking about trying to shift some really internalized beliefs and you know feelings and um so whilst I thought okay you know it, of course it would have been nice for the initial the the initial manual and you know to not need any changes and and this is all we need but you know also realistic enough to know that um, you know we're talking about making really quite significant changes here that require for some people anyway you know a, a much longer opportunity to practice mm. I mean that's the the beauty of science isn't it really is is we form hypotheses and we test them and then we try to be as sort of objective as we can about you know what that might be and what how we then interpret it and then we yeah, you know, soldier on with the next bit, and and actually, I, I take your point. You know, like e even the, the the sort of that secondary sort of phase there with the the adapted program. You know, even with that, you you're still aware that this is, you know, this is a a, a tough go for people, and and so it takes. It, you know, it's likely to to sort of be uh, beyond a twelve week thing as well. Really, you know, that the continued opportunities to to work with this stuff and to practice is important although you know like it's also really remarkable results you know that the idea there that you know that that people were you know that they consolidated their 
compassion, compassionate, I guess, motivation and, and, and engagement and action, they were, you know, sort of had reductions, I guess, in, in shame. I mean, it's this sort of deeply internalized, you know, sort of a thing. And yet the 12 week program kind of helped with that. And then actually, you know, it sort of helped with trauma symptoms as well. You know, that, that this was a, but well, you did mention that there was some stuff in the adapted program that, that targeted trauma symptoms to a degree, but it, it wasn't, you know, your classic exposure-based treatment or something that somehow the CFT approach also helped with, with the trauma symptoms. Yeah, well, that, it's a good point you raise. Um, and I guess, you know, we do need to qualify with saying we don't know that it's the CFT approach that helped with that. But uh, I think that there's good reason to be optimistic and hopeful about it. And you're right that uh, the program itself does not require explicit processing of trauma memories. And in, in, in fact, qu quite the opposite. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, for, for um, a significant percentage of the participants, there was reliable change in the reduction of symptoms of post-traumatic stress, even without that kind of, you know, what we would consider to be phase two trauma processing. And in terms of, you know, is it CFT that contributed to that? Well, uh, obviously, I think that there is a CFT component at the very least that contributed to that because these are participants who largely had already engaged in lots of individual therapy prior mm. to coming and with very skilled and experienced sexual assault counsellors in specialised services. So, um, you know, they there's, there's reason to certainly assume that they were... Um, getting very, uh, very, you know, best practice in terms of uh, their the therapeutic intervention. And yet, you know, we're still um, at the start of the group experiencing, you know, uh, significant symptoms of post-traumatic stress and shame. And, you know, at the end of the group uh, program, something had shifted for, for a large majority of the mm. participants. And the effect size, when I compare the effect sizes that came out of this study to other studies that had um, that have used group interventions for this particular client group, were higher um, in in this program in, in my research than other comparable kind of uh, studies and group programs. So. I think there's reason to be hopeful that maybe there's something about the intervention itself, and maybe it's not just you know the group process experience, uh, but obviously that needs to be tested further before we can conclusively say that. But as a preliminary investigation, I think it's certainly very hopeful in terms of the applicability and mm. potential effectiveness of CFT for this client group. So your participants had experienced other treatments in a sense, you yes. know, including group mm -hmm. treatments potentially and, and weren't really sort of first presentation type um, participants and and so yes the the idea is that that a shift did happen it seems you know kind of um, through this this through your group and it absolutely seems like a, a reasonable hunch that 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 therefore the group was kind of helpful to a certain degree you actually sound it sounds like you did a number of you know, kind of analyses to really try to tease that out. You, you obviously looked at the statistical changes over time 
but you looked at the reliability of change by the sounds of it, that perhaps the, um, the clinical reliability there. And, and there was sort of a number of people in the group that really did change in that sort of reliable way. And then you explored effect sizes as well, which, which sounds like was comparable to, to sort of, you know, other treatments and stuff. So, I mean, it does sound like a very robust look at, um, you know, uh, there, there wasn't a control group. So you, you did, I guess that was something you said before, but, but yeah, a robust look at, can this, can this approach be helpful? And, and well, yeah, maybe it can. And it's, it's certainly worth um, some further, further look. One of the things I've, I've been quite curious about with, with people in these conversations, I guess, is, is what they've noticed about challenges, maybe, you know, the, the, the whether they're, are particular things that you've noticed either in your clinical work before or but during the the, the groups that that you've run for the research you know what 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 do you notice with this client group about you know the the challenges the the the, the thing the pushback there may be or the bits that are harder to convey yeah i i think the biggest challenge for this client group is, you know, when we think about the three systems involved that we talk about in CFT, uh, for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, the large majority of perpetrators are going to be people that are known and trusted to them. So there is a real overlap between the threat and the soothing system. So the very people who they rely on to be a part of their soothing system are actually the people that are generating threat. Mm. And I think the ongoing impact of that is one of the most significant blocks, you know, to, to overcome in order to um, facilitate self-compassion and even compassion from others, because it can be obviously very, very hard to trust other people who who may very well be potentially be able to be a part of your soothing system but when there's an association of um, threat uh, you know implicit in that because of that early experience and that's going to make it very very hard to ever fully trust and relax into that mm. and also even the idea of relaxing your threat system at all you know, when, when that has been a potentially dangerous thing to do, when, when you know, allowing yourself to, um, for want of a better term, kind of turn off your threat system uh, could have very, very appropriately been dangerous at, at one point in time. So learning to remain hypervigilant and learning to never fully trust being calm and content and relaxed because that represents danger. I know um, in the qualitative data that I obtained, you know, one participant talked about it as feeling like a bit of a sitting duck that, you know, just waiting for, for that threat to kind of emerge and not ever feeling fully safe. So, you know, that's a really important thing to understand when we're trying to then not just reduce the sense of threat, but enhance the soothing system, that that's actually going to activate threat and any... The other thing associated with that is, you know, we're talking about clients who experienced a body-based trauma and yet really in this process, we're asking them to connect to their body, connect to their breath and connect to, to their body through the practices or just in embodying that felt sense of compassion. So that's likely to activate a, a threat response rather than a soothing response. 
so really kind of normalizing that and giving um, you know psychoeducation around that so clients don't feel like they're kind of failing at this compassion thing or there's something wrong with them uh, you know as we know a very core message in CFT is this is not your fault and um, so really highlighting that and helping clients understand that this is what's happening whenever you kind of feel like you're letting your guard down and really recognizing that that's essentially what we're asking them to do is to override what has become these really, um, really important coping strategies um, for them throughout their life that at one point in time were absolutely needed and made sense that then asking them to connect to their body, which quite often they've, you know, rejected or have quite a negative relationship with. Uh, you know, even through really what we might think of as really quite simple breathing practices could potentially be very threat activating. So um, we, we really need to be thinking about how we're titrating it and how we're giving individualized options um, for, for clients who've experienced this particular trauma. Yes, yeah, so as you talk about that, I, I sort of, you know, just really realize that interpersonal or relational trauma is just so such a, a unique thing isn't it really in terms of as you know because it, it goes straight to the heart of this notion that we sort of need and rely and care for and with others you know and it, it just compromises that whole part, aspect of what it is to be human that, that because you, you sort of all of a sudden um, others especially carers you carer type others are the threat and so now that soothing system is compromised it's all mixed up in 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 doubt and fear and and you know um, mistrust the threat system is you know kind of we there's so much investment now in the threat system because that's what keeps me safe and and you know um, I don't want to really let that go the, the very poignant idea there of just feeling like a sitting duck, you know, interpersonally, yeah. I'm like a sitting duck, you know, who, who's going to hurt me next sort of thing. And, and, and then, um, and then it, it's also that the, 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 the kind of the one's very own body gets dragged in too, you know, and, and becomes uh, itself, a source of threat, you know, the, the physiology of things and, and even just turning one's attention towards the body to begin a practice, you know, all of a sudden that, that just connects straight back, I guess, to to certain, you know, early life experience. And, and that, that interpersonal trauma is just so uh, damaging to, to all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, really, that's where we learn about our sense of self and and how how others view us and perceive us and uh, how we learn about our, you know how to relate with others and whether the world is safe, whether other people are safe, uh, whether we are valued and worthy, um, you know, and what our relationship is like with our body. I mean, they're really formative stages where. Um, you know, the message that's given through, you know, the very experience of childhood sexual abuse is um, it, it's not safe. You're not safe in your body. You're not safe with other people. Uh, the world is actually a dangerous uh, place. Uh, it's not safe to, to relax. It's not safe to let your guard down. Your feelings, your needs, your rights don't matter. 
Mm. Um, you know, th these are the kind of messages that are implicit in, in uh, the perpetration of childhood sexual abuse. And the other message that just jumps to mind as well is that actually, and it is all your fault, you know, is, is sort of in there as well. And, and that's, that's the, the beginnings of the shame element that you were so aware of, you know, that, that it, it, it is your fault and you are a bad person. And, and that then sort of, it, it's kind of the fear and the shame aspects of, of the trauma yeah. that, that then becomes so painful. Absolutely. I think that's a really critical point because we're also talking about a stage of development that is quite appropriately self-focused. And mm. uh, this is a really big experience and concept for a child to have to try and make sense of usually on their own because we we know how difficult it is to actually make disclosures about this as a child and all the barriers against this so we've got a child's mind that's trying to make sense of this experience that you know adults can't make sense of so um you know the the interpretation is it's something about me there's something about me that's actually causing this and that's often a very explicit message that's also given in the process of the abuse as well so uh you know without the opportunity to kind of have someone help or get to a point in your life where you can update that way of making sense of it uh, that's that's what's internalized that's what's carried through but in some ways and this has certainly been my experience both clinically and in the group programs um, as a part of my project in some ways that feels safer even as an adult for someone to maintain that belief that this is my fault yeah in some ways that's actually more tolerable for people to think well this must be my fault than actually face the reality that this person that I loved and trusted and you know relied on in my life is is uh, responsible for this so uh, you know there's a lot of reasons why um, people end up carrying that kind of legacy of shame and self-blame and the idea of challenging yeah the idea of challenging shame and self-blame when that actually does end up occurring there can be a whole lot of grief and a whole lot of rage that's sitting not far behind that you know when mm. when we can actually release from that shame um, coming to terms with what that shame may have cost you throughout your life, the impact of that, mm. um, the, the feelings about the people who in your life might have reinforced that sense of shame or self-blame and, you know, that real a genuine understanding about where the shame and, and blame actually does lie can be really powerful, can, can be really uh, quite a challenging process to work through um, once shame and self-blame have been kind of released then often what lies not far behind that is some pretty intense rage and grief that requires some processing if i think about it you know like the the person you know starts to approach their body and that kind of triggers a whole range of very difficult feelings and and physiologies and fear responses and and then they have to you know, confront the fear of, of, you know, perhaps even, you know, letting people in or opening themselves up to others or, or even to themselves and, and self-compassion. But then, then there's sort of the shame and having to approach that and, and you know, kind of um, maybe even daring to think, you know, perhaps it's not my fault. And, and then there's, you know, rage because of what we have now lost and, and the feeling, the sudden, you know, the realizations there and really connecting with a lot of that. And then there's the grief 
that I mean, it's oh, you know, that's that um, you know, it's there's a lot that people have to really kind of press on through, isn't there? And and you can sort of see that even that that you know that, that no wonder people sometimes prefer to just stick with the status quo because all of that kind of feels so much and yet the courage that that, that is there when when you know that people uh you know sort of really dig have to dig deep into that courageous effort to to approach all of this you know it's it's remarkable really I think the way that you've summarised that really highlights what emerged from the qualitative study, um, interviewing participants out, uh, after the participation in the group program, which really highlighted that process of how important the initial stages of just providing that support, that titration, that individualised kind of adaptation as needed, really normalising and creating space to work through those fears and blocks and resistances, um, really establishing a sense of safety and support because then def and that's kind of what participants identified as being really important for them to be willing to kind of tolerate and work through those challenges when they emerged and there very much was that phase in the middle of um, you know when they were kind of trying out when they're trying out this new idea of okay what happens if I bring a compassionate mind perspective to what I'm experiencing thinking feeling there were struggles I know one of the categories in the qualitative analysis was was the struggle between old and new because of very much what you just said the temptation to just go oh this feels this is hard, you know, coming to terms with all of this and really, which is why we say over and over, as you know, that compassion is not a weak, fluffy process. It takes a lot of courage to do this. And so, you know, the nature of the support that's actually provided really needs to have that scaffolding around the process so that when it does get to that, well, what I'm actually facing here in terms of, you know, overcoming those fears and blocks and uh, releasing myself from shame and self-blame, but uh, really coming to terms with what it has meant to carry that through my life and where it really belongs. And, you know, th there's a real struggle in that feeling safe enough and comfortable enough to just relax into your soothing system and to allow your threat system to not be chronically activated. That takes so much courage and it can be really scary. So, you know, having support and scaffolding around it and normalising and expecting that that's going to be a part of the process but every participant that I interviewed after the program said that if they were able to kind of navigate that phase, it was absolutely worthwhile. And then it became really internalized. So they talk about kind of compassion being just a part of who they are. It just, you know, that's what became more automatic for them rather than self-criticism or, 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 or shame. You know, that there's genuine shifts to even how they see themselves, their self-identity. So things like saying, I now know that this happened to me, but this isn't me. So there was this real capacity to kind of separate the experience from their identity. Um, that's where the shame gets to shift when, when you begin to understand that, that there's more to me than this experience and, and this doesn't define who, who I am. It happened to me, but it isn't me. But there's a process, you know, that, that, that you know, and a bit of a struggle in between that process before it, get, it gets to that point. That's certainly what I found anyway.
finding ways to sort of, I think you used the word scaffolding, you know, trying to sort of help people. If, if, if we can get through that phase, then it, it actually, you know, pe people really can in internalize a, a, a different, a whole different piece, you know, that the, you, you use the word internalized for the shame piece, you know, that, that, that it, it gets so internalized. And yet at the end of the program, there's this internalized compassion uh, which, yeah. you know, really sort of, I think, you know, you, you've said to me before, kind of is, is a bit like an antidote to the shame in a way. It, it yes, becomes absolutely. really embodied and internalised as, as a way to, to sort of cope with all of that. When, when you can see that kind of internalised shift, you know, when, when that lag is no longer there, that what someone ah. knows in their head it ha has been felt uh, on, on a deeper level and, and you know, you get to have sometimes those beautiful moments where you can almost see that kind of happening. And um, mm. it changes the whole way that people relate to themselves and to their experience. And the absolute highlight for me, you know, not just in this project, but just in this work is, and, it, you know, I'm careful to say this because I don't want it to sound patronizing in any way, because it is so genuine that mm. the women that I got to work with and that I continue to get to work with who show such incredible courage in you know being willing to kind of step into this space and and be open to kind of experimenting with something that you know you know quite honestly is is really uh, a scary thing to do but but to just kind of know that there's an there's an, another kind of possible way or to just maintain the hope even you know a, one of the other themes that kind of emerged from the qualitative analysis was this initial wary but hopeful you know this idea of coming into the process of I'm not ready to give up hope yet but I'm I'm wary about this I'm not sure you know what's going to be different about this and um, you know not really convinced that there's going to really be anything that's going to make such a difference so to just keep stepping into that space and maintaining that hope and maintaining that courage and trying to overcome the harm that has been caused to them by another mm. uh, you know and that's what keeps me you know that's where I tap into this idea of fierce compassion you know whenever I'm talking to someone about that say this is that's the very motivation that I have for doing this it's just like this is just not okay mm. um, you know you have done nothing wrong you have been harmed by another and yet mm. you know the the chronic and cumulative and you know impact and yet they're showing up, they're, they're maintaining hope and they're being courageous and just, just being open to, to, to experimenting with something else is just so inspiring. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to meet them in that space and, and say, okay, let's, let's, let's use that as a platform. Let's see what we can do here. It reminds me of one of Deborah Lee's things that she sometimes says about the experience of abuse is a violation of that person's human rights you know that absolutely it's it's act that's actually what's happening there and and the harm absolutely. caused with all of that and 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 yet the the willingness you know wary but hopeful yeah i like that it it, it, it is it's, it's a lot of kind of no doubt apprehension there or even trepidation and yet that ability to connect with with sort of a, a little bit of hope or and and therefore you know kind of let's do this you know it's it's quite literally inspiring isn't it
genuinely inspiring and motivating and what keeps me kind of showing up to do to to as I said I'm willing to meet them in this space and mm. and work together to try and um, find a way that they can connect to their themselves and 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 not you know the way that they've come to see themselves as a result of the harm caused to them by another how does this stuff kind of sneak in personally for you if if anything you know do, do you, have you noticed yourself change or grow or, or develop in certain certain ways yeah absolutely I, I think this this isn't a this isn't an approach that you just kind of have the knowledge in your mind and you you give it to another like you really need to embody it you really need to internalize it yourself um, I think and um, it's been life-changing for me personally as well as professionally but it's been an interesting journey for me as well in terms of cultivating my own kind of compassionate mind and I've I've needed reminders you know from yourself included and and other mentors and you know people saying hey where are you in this uh, are you making sure that you're um, offering compassion to yourself Mm -hmm. um and you know it's been an interesting kind of parallel process because I so often the women that I have been working with are so good at offering compassion to other people but you know just the complete opposite in terms of how they feel and respond to themselves and you know I was constantly being you know working to try and help women um, or clients just kind of really experience compassion across all of the flows, including towards themselves. And yet, even though I couldn't literally could not have been more immersed in it, you know, the, the, the concept of self-compassion, if I tried, I still needed to be reminded to kind of do that for myself. So um, yes, along the way, I, I definitely access many of the compassionate practices and still do every day. Um, to you know continue to cultivate my own compassionate mind it's the good old three flows I guess That's and right. we're, we're sort of helping others with cultivating the three flows of compassion and and we're trying to just remember um, to to do so ourselves well Lisa it, it's it's such important work and 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 thank you for you know just dedicating so much of your professional life and and really just your own heart and soul to this to this work and and to helping people I, I really admire and appreciate all that you do and and um and and really even you know today especially just hearing in depth uh so much of your wisdom that you've acquired you know over the years and through research and really doing the the scientist practitioner thing you know bringing all of that together to 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 properly understand an area that you are so passionate and and dedicated to, I, I really appreciate all of that. So, what's what's happening for you from here? You know, like, what do you have anything on the go or any sort of projects or? I am very committed now. What I really want to do, obviously, in addition to um, continuing to apply this in clinical, my own clinical practice is really uh, trying to work with other 
um, sexual assault counsellors, sexual assault services, people who work with clients impacted by uh, complex trauma, and really, I guess, in a nutshell, spread the word, you know, that uh, CFT has some real potential here and, um, you know, really help them to understand what CFT is about and how it can be applied to this particular mm. client group so we can have this exponential kind of benefit um, that mm. comes from it. So that's what I'm trying to create some time and opportunity to be able to commit to from here in the spirit of that um you know what would be three tips <laughs> what would what would be three things that you would like to to sort of share with others who are who are on this this journey i think the first thing is to be open to it to be willing to to experiment i guess and be curious about what would it be like to try to bring a compassionate mind perspective to my experience to myself to my feelings rather than respond from a threat focus or from self-criticism self-judgment and shame i think the other thing is being really clear about what we mean by self-compassion compassion more broadly i think there's a lot of misperceptions and misunderstandings as we briefly kind of alluded to earlier that um, it's not self-pity, it's not selfish, it's not self-indulgent. Uh, so have a really clear understanding about what we mean by compassion because I think that that's an easy barrier to, to overcome and maybe uh, open up a motivation towards giving it a go when we really understand what it means. I think it's important to know that, it, you know, there's going to be threat system activation in this process is going to be fears blocks and resistances to work through but it's it's worth it but it may also be important to know to access professional support at some point in the process to just help as we said provide that support and scaffolding around around it be sort of open willing curious you know mm. Um, secondly, you know, be clear about what we mean by compassion and, and sort of, and then thirdly, um, you know, there, there will be FBRs, so to speak, there will be fears, blocks and resistances, um, and, and it's worth it. It's worth it, yeah. And I think, you know, you, you've heard me say this a lot, and this is my dedication page as well, this, this, the shame is not for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to carry you know, that's my motivation. And, and I really would love that to be the motivation uh, for survivors themselves as well, to really be willing to, to, to release themselves from the shame that is not theirs to carry. Beautifully said. If, if people were to want to be in touch with you or, or you, you, well, you mentioned your, your new practice uh, is there sort of a website there and there is yeah so it's based on the sunshine coast but um it's called ocean psychology so it's just ocean psychology one word dot com dot au contact details on the website if contact people want to get in touch well i i really appreciate you coming and having a little chat with me you've actually said so much there that um uh, you know it will be great for us all to reflect upon and, and meditate over and, and, and actually, you know, bring into our work. So thank you, Lisa, for coming and, and chatting with me on your Friday morning. Thank you, Stan. It's been good to talk to you again and an honour to be a part of this series. Thank you. And thank 
you for all of your support in making uh, the work that I did through my project possible because um, I wouldn't have been able to be here talking about all of that if it wasn't for you and your support. So thank you so much. Very good. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye.